My guest today is Benedict Evans. He's a technology analyst at the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. He's here today to discuss the future of the tech sector and its impact on business and the economy and all our lives. Benedict, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Maybe it's my perception and maybe it's wrong, but it seems that we are in a period of techno-pessimism. Uh, it seems most of the things that I read are about the problems caused by advancing technology, whether it's uh, uh, concerns about privacy, concerns about job loss, concerns about uh, too much corporate power and impact on democracy, oligopoly, inequality. Uh, your life is technology, and I assume that you think it's going to make our lives better in the future than they are today, not that there aren't trade-offs. So what is sort of the, the techno-optimist case right now for where the technologies that you track will take us? So I think there's, there's a bunch of different ways of answering that question. Um, one of them is that, you know, when a technology is very new, people say it won't work. And then it works and people say, oh, my God, this is amazing Look what I can do. And then over time, you discover both the positive and the negative implications of that. And then a little bit further on, things sort of settle down and you just kind of work out how this is going to be. And you could apply that to everything from railways to aircraft to cars to television um, there's always a sort of a, um, a pendulum swings back and forth a couple of times before we work out the equilibrium of how we understand these things um, and what the good things and the bad things are around them. Um, I think, and we're definitely in one of those kind of pendulum swings right now. Um, you know, you gave us everybody, everybody on the earth has got a smartphone, boring, but have you seen this terrible thing that's happening? Um, so we've had the good stuff and now we're getting kind of working out what we think about the, 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 some of the bad things that might come out of that. I think there's a how optimistic is one. Well, I think we're still the pretty early stages of discovering what sort of software can do, um, what the fact that everybody in the world is connected can do. We're what's the phrase in the deployment phase as opposed to the creation phase. Um, now, as the Frenchman said, hell is other people. So sometimes connecting everybody has some bad consequences, but over time, you, you want hope, tries to hope that consequences will be good. Do you think there was too much optimism, uh, even, even about the technologies where they are today, that we would have, that we'd be able to connect everybody and have access to information and be able to share our ideas, and that would produce more fulfilling lives, a better society, better democracies. Do you think there was too much optimism about that? Uh, because certainly, you know, when I pick up the newspaper, it seems like all this, all this connectivity is having some huge externalities that perhaps we weren't talking about a few years ago. So if you go right back to the beginning, any kind of radical new thing tends to come with utopianism because you have to be kind of utopian and crazy to believe in it at all. So that's what the internet looked like 25 years ago. Um, people said it was going to end war and end conflict and, you know, there would be universal perfect democracy and, you know, there would no longer any be, be any, you know, there would never be any more hatred because everyone would understand everybody on the world. And obviously that sort of missed some pretty basic things about how the world works and about how people work. But, you know, people said the same thing about aircraft. You know, there would be no war because of aircraft because there are no borders in the sky. Um, no, I believe uh, there was a there was a there was a movie. I think that, I don't know if that was the 1920s. I think the, was it the Shape of Things to Come that showed 
uh, aircraft, you know, run by an elite, sort of bringing bringing peace to a fallen world. Yeah, so there's always a little bit of utopianism in the creation of some radical new thing, because otherwise you you know you have to be kind of a, a bit utopian, have a utopian mentality, even to believe that the thing is possible or worth doing. Right. Um, then you know you put it in the hands of billions of people, and not everybody on Earth is very nice, and not all of the dynamics of human um, interaction always produce positive outcomes, and so that gets translated into this new form. Um, and, you know, sometimes that results in serious problems. Sometimes it results in a moral panic. Generally, it, it produces both. So I think if you think about um, how people used to talk about how television was making us all, turning us all into zombies, um, or how novels were going to make young ladies um, lose any sense of morality, that was kind of a common kind of talking point from the end of the 19th century. Um, and so there's always kind of a pendulum swing. Um, Part of this, I think, is a collision of the capability with humanity. And as I said, not everybody on Earth is nice and not all human dynamics of human interaction necessarily produce positive outcomes. But I don't think we'd like to get rid of television or aircraft or electricity um, And the kind of the long the general direction of humanity tends towards improvement. Um, we, we, we had, uh, Robert Gordon, uh, the economist, uh, on, on the show, I guess now maybe it was last year, maybe the year before. Um, and he, you know, he's been famously pessimistic about sort of the, the, the broader impact of these new technologies, um, particularly artificial intelligence as, as sort of game changing technologies that will really change our lives. that will produce a lot more economic growth that will make us a lot more productive, as you look at these technologies uh, today, what, like, what can we expect our lives to look like ten years from now, twenty years from now? You know, much faster growth. Are we all going to be more productive? Will, will, will there be a noticeable difference because of these technologies? So, uh, in this context, I quite often refer to the Billy Wilder, Jack Lemmon movie, The Apartment, from 1960, where. Jack Lemon is a clerk in an insurance company, and there's 10 or 15,000 people in this building, and everybody has a typewriter and a Rolodex and an electromechanical adding machine. And basically, everybody in that building is a cell and a spreadsheet. And Jack Lemon's character spends 20 years of his life doing um, something that today is done in three cells or two cells in a spreadsheet. And then they bought a mainframe in, say, 1965, and then we've gone through successive waves of automation after that. And the thing about each wave of automation is that it gets rid of a bunch of jobs and creates a bunch of new ones. And there's quite often some pretty painful friction around that process. But I don't think any of us would want to go back to a world in which 90, 95% of us were you know, agricultural laborers or 80 or 90% of us were doing repetitive manual work in, in heavy industry, you know, bashing pieces of metal with, our bare, with, our, with a hammer in our, in our hands. So, you know, that's a con that process is, you know, a conversation that a, an academic economist could talk about much more than me. But my point is, I don't think there's anything specific to machine learning that's different from just that process happening over and over and over again. And so we no longer have um, lots of typesetters working in printing works and working in newspapers, but we have a lot of graphic designers. Um, you know, job creation continues just in, in parallel with, with the, the destruction of jobs. I should point out, getting back to the apartment, um, Shirley MacLaine plays an elevator attendant. 
her entire job is to stand in the elevator and someone gets in and press 15, says floor 15, please, and she presses button 15. There were in, the, in the 1950s or 60s, I think the US peaked at 80,000 elevator attendants. Uh, those jobs all went away because of automation. I don't think we want them back. No, so you don't, so again, and I've certainly heard you know some of these um, analogies before. And certainly, the historical lesson, um, if it, just to, just to focus on jobs, is that jobs will be destroyed, jobs will be created, uh, will have a much higher standard of living. So you, so you, so you think that story. So I don't think so. So to go, kind of go one, two level, one level into this, one argument says this is what always happens, um, and there's nothing new here. It's just another piece of automation, like all the pieces of automation we've had before. The other narrative would say we've been automating progressively higher and higher level human functions, and so there, you know, there, I, there's a famous Russian painting called by Repin called Barge Haulers on the Volga. And it's a painting of kind of 20 guys leaning against a cable, pulling a barge up the river. And just on the horizon, you can see a steamship. And so this is human beings as beasts of burden. And those jobs went away and they weren't replaced by other jobs of, for human beings as beasts of burden. And then you kind of go up and up and up. And so you require, so to speak, more and more intelligence and more and more of insight or skill or craft or, 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 or genius or whatever it is, um, as you automate more and more kind of lower level capabilities. And so the theory would be, well, eventually we'll get to the top um, and we'll have gone all the way up and there won't be any jobs for anybody who isn't capable of getting a PhD because any other job lower down than that will be automated away. Or there won't be any job that doesn't require an IQ of at least 160 because every job below that will be automated away. Um, and so we'll get to the end. Now, I think there's kind of two problems with that. The first is, um, even presuming that this is the case, we are not five and 10 and 20 years away from this. We're 50 or 100 or 200 years away from that, um, from the actual ability to create computers that have that level of understanding. Um, very, very few people working, actually working on machine learning think that we are within decades, certainly within 20 or 30. I would say the most aggressive people would say maybe 20, 30, 40 years, we might have HAL 9000, maybe, but a lot of people think that's way too ag aggressive. Um, so that's one argument. Even if you buy all of this, it's not like in the next five and 10 years. The other argument is that that's kind of a fallacious way of thinking about the process of automation, that a graphic designer is not somehow more creative than a typesetter, it's just different. And I kind of tend towards that argument. Um, either way, like kind of it's, it, it is a bit sort of come back in 30 years and, and, and let me know. Right. So there's, um, there's a joke, there's a joke about uh, a philosophy student who commits suicide to find out what happens. If we're talking about like a timeline, uh, the, the, the timeline question I get asked most about is the autonomous car, driverless car, uh, timeline where it seems that we've moved from position when I would, when I would talk about this, people would think this sounds like science fiction. It'll never happen. And then people started worrying, gee, it's, it, it's going to happen. It's going to happen any day now. And all the truck drivers will lose their jobs or the delivery people will lose their jobs. What is sort of the reasonable timeline on when we will see autonomous vehicles? And again, we have to sort of define what we mean by that. But I think the average person, see, like being in a vehicle where you can go check your email, take a quick nap, and it will be just fine operating in a major metropolitan area. Sure. Okay, so first observation, um, 
People talk a lot about truck drivers. There's, from memory, as it might be, 5 million people are listed as truck drivers. Actually, about only about half of those are long-haul trucking, which is the place that this is really applicable because you know the FedEx driver who's getting in and out of the truck and walking into buildings all day, that's a completely different... Automating that is a totally different conversation. Um, if you're talking about automating a truck or maybe automating a, um, a taxi, that's, you know, it's very low single-digit millions of people in the USA. And so... If you subscribe to the view jobs that destroy jobs are created, that should sort of fit inside the churn, particularly given the average age of a long-haul truck driver is some, something in their 50s or 60s. So that's just kind of an observation. It's, it's actually not a great example of enormous disruption because we're not talking about a huge number of people in proportion to the, pop, the overall working population. To, to answer your question, um, I think of autonomy as a question of where rather than a question of when. Because you have a bunch of, of, of you know, some some. some environments are much easier than others so the freeway even though you're going faster is much easier to solve than suburban streets because you don't have side streets you don't have children running onto the road there's no trees there's no signals there's actually very little there's no oncoming traffic there's nobody's going to be stopped blocking the road so there's much 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 less that can happen um that could be weird there's way fewer corner cases right. um and so it, beca- it also becomes practical that you can kind of have remote operation if you do have a corner case so freeways are, are, are kind of at the easy end of the scale. Um, sort of Phoenix is easy, relatively easy. It's easier than San Francisco. San Francisco is easier than Boston. Boston is right. easier than Naples. Naples is maybe easier than Kathmandu. Um, so, or than Bangalore, or you know, pick a pick a pick a pick a city. So, and we're not going to wait until it works in Bangalore before we deploy it in Phoenix. So, what you have is. There is this kind of terminology in the industry of kind of level four, which is can do can drive itself most of the time. Level five can drive by itself all of the time. I don't think all of the time seems kind of meaningless to me. Like, where what do you mean by all? So you'll have a vehicle that can drive by itself some portion of some journeys, and that will stamp on the brakes if somebody jumps in front of you, but you need to be driving. And we will have, supposing I don't know big name, supposing Cambridge is autonomous only at weekends and you drive to the edge of town and you have to park your car and take an autonomous golf cart, a self-driving golf cart. Is that golf cart fully autonomous? Well, it doesn't leave Cambridge, but it drives itself around Cambridge at 15 miles an hour. So I think there's a much more kind of multifaceted, multimodal conversation around what autonomy means. I mean, you imagine a garbage truck that can follow the crew down the road at walking pace. And when they get to the end of the road, they get in and they have to drive it back to the depot. Is that autonomous or not? Well, it's autonomous when when the crew get out, but then the crew get back in and drive it. So I think there's a lot of different kind of aspects to what this will mean. It's not yeah. as binary as just saying, well, there will be a self-driving vehicle. For sure. And I, and I was trying to get a little bit at, at the question by putting some constraints on it uh, as far as uh, as far as far as location. And I but I know that when I talk about this issue with people, uh, there's there tends to be a lot of concern about about privacy issues that we're all going to be banned from driving cars uh, at some point. Um, and they say, well, how will this make our lives better? And, you know, obviously one way you can say is fewer accidents and, you know, many tens of thousands of people, fewer you know, dying on the highways. To get to the point where, where that's true, where you decrease auto deaths by 90%, how, again, sort of how widespread does this technology to be adopted and how good does it need to be? Well, so the, the way to give an accurate answer to that question, you kind of have to analyze, well, where are the accidents happening and how does the places where the accidents happen map to the kinds of roads that are easy to do autonomy? So 
I don't know what percentage of the deaths are happening on highways, but highways will happen earlier than suburbs. Like maybe all the deaths are in suburbs and all the autonomy will be on highways, for example. So there's kind of a modeling question within that right. that you'd have to get, you'd have to go and do. Second, I think there's a question of herd immunity, for want of a better term. That's to say, if your car even has like assisted cruise control, which means it will stamp on the brakes if somebody in front of you stamps on the brakes. It's not autonomy at all. You know, that's a feature phone kind of car rather than a smartphone kind of car. Um, but that will still start saving lives. And, you know, the backup indicator that will stamp on the brakes if somebody's going to, or the, um, the blind spot indicators, you know, as these functions start getting more widely deployed and then the interfaces start getting better, so you don't just have like 300 flashing lights on your dashboard, right. you'll start getting, you know, if your car does, does, won't, won't rear-end people, then that's not just your accident, but somebody else's accident. So you get kind of a herd immunity effect as you start getting quite a small proportion of these vehicles into the fleet. Um, disproportionately fewer accidents will happen. Um, then there's kind of another kind of, then you kind of get a break point where you start having areas that are autonomy only. So if you have um, fleets um, for particular freeways that are autonomy only or particular cities that are autonomy only or it's autonomy only at night for delivery vehicles in Manhattan, um, then you kind of start peeling off particular use cases. And then you say, well, what are the accidents that are associated with, with those particular use cases, which, as I said, is kind of a model, right. excuse me, kind of a, a modeling question that I wouldn't, you know, I don't have those right. numbers in front but, of but, me. But it sounds like um, it's the timing, the time, Sorry, I was going to say, to the timing question, um, I would say we are, you know, within a couple of years of having a lot of semi-autonomous trucks on freeways. This is a relatively simple problem. A car that can drive itself from San Francisco to Boston without stopping, that's on more on the sort of five-year-ish, kind of a five, maybe even 10-year sort of horizon. I mean, one of the interesting things here is that the, the sort of the same timeline means different, the same sort of dates mean different things to different people. So if you're in the car industry and you say five years, well, that's kind of halfway through this product cycle, or maybe the next product cycle. So that's like you've already, you've already ordered the equipment for stuff in five years. Whereas in the tech industry, when you say five years, you say we think we probably know how to do it, um, but we can't do it yet. And where you say 10 years, you're really saying, well, it's not science fiction in that we think we have the things that would make that possible, but we really have no clue how we would do it. Right. And anything beyond 10 years is you're, you're kind of getting into, you know, you're getting into science fiction territory of like, well, we, you know, science fiction that doesn't break the laws of physics. It's like, well, the right. laws of physics mean that it ought to be possible to do that. And we kind of think maybe it's rockets or maybe it's planes or maybe it's a nuclear engine, but like we don't really know. Right. Whereas, again, the car industry, you say 10 years, well, you know, that's next model. Uh, but it, it sounds like that we're going to have cars with, with steering wheels and, you know, that, that, that the humor yeah, humans think, can take I'm over thinking, for some time. I think one would think in kind of multi-decade. So the default, the, the obvious default way of thinking about this is sort of multi-decade transition. And of course, there's the electric transition happening separately, which is kind of independent of this. But multi-decade is how long for the first autonomous car, how, for, how long for fully autonomous, whatever that means, how long for all vehicles in that category to be autonomous, how long before... All vehicles, all new, also how long all new, all new vehicles are autonomous? How long before 
enough of the installed base, enough of the fleet is autonomous that things start changing? How long before you can start saying, right, no manually driven cars are allowed on this road? Um, and there's a lot of huge kind of fuzzy assumptions in that. But it's hard not to see that being a multi, really hard not to see that being a multi, multi-decade process. Um, on the other hand, um, you could imagine, you know, a city says, right, our garbage trucks are going to switch to this fully autonomous mode next year. And all the garbage trucks are fully autonomous. Or all of the delivery has to be this on a five-year view. All the delivery in Manhattan has to be electric and semi-autonomous in five years. So you could imagine kind of forcing functions like that that would drive particular use cases to switch much quicker. Right. Uh, And how much of an obstacle is regulation do you think governments are sort of figuring things out and creating a broad framework um to sort of facilitate this technology or do you or do you think policymakers still just you know they're still struggling so i think there's a bunch of iteration there's a bunch of kind of regulatory competition there's a bunch of dialogue going on around quite how one thinks about this stuff um obviously there's kind of an interim question of how do you regulate people who are testing these systems and using them to collect data um, what happens when a car is on the road with no steering wheel? I know you've, a lot of people have probably seen there was a New Yorker cartoon, two autonomous cars. One of them has police written on the side of it, and the cop is saying to the driver, does your car know why my car stopped it? <laughs> so, right. so you kind of get to a bunch of questions around, okay, who's responsible for the safety system? Where, is the certi- where does the certification sit? Whose fault is it if it hasn't been done built properly? Who is maintaining this? Um, you know, we kind of work that stuff out in the same way that we had kind of had to work that stuff out with automobiles a century ago or a bit over a century ago. So I don't tend to see regulation as something that sort of slows this stuff down, partly because it's not like it's all sitting in the garage waiting to go right now anyway. I think it's something that goes hand in hand with the evolution of different use cases. And as I said, to me, the interesting bit of the regulation is not so much the telling car companies mandated safety requirements. It's more questions like, as I said, what happens if Manhattan says all delivery vehicles at night in the weekend have to be electric and or have to be level three autonomous or level four autonomous? Um, uh, Another uh, technology I get asked a lot about is next generation wireless, the sort of 5G. And yeah, I want to ask you whether you think it is is overhyped, not hyped enough. Uh, but I, I think about 5G and I think about AI and I think about China and you often hear that there is a there is an AI race between the United States and China. There's a there's a race for 5G supremacy between the United States and China. And I'm just wondering what you think about that metaphor of a race between these two countries so, well, and these technologies. So there's two very different conversations. There's, there's a bunch of different. There is 5G, and then there is AI, and then there's China, and there's, those are very different conversations. Um, as we talk about AI, 5G, um, I'm kind of reminded of the immortal scene in Spinal Tap where he says, "Well, this is one louder, isn't it?" So you know, five, <laughs> eleven. It gets one, it's one faster. Um, so I think for general consumption, for most general purposes. One should asking what is five what does five G mean? The answer is exactly the same as what does four G mean. That is to say, it will add capacity and to some extent speed um, to cellular networks, um, and it will allow operators to continue adding capacity um, 
without the network falling down because 4G is starting to fill up. Will any consumer really know that they're using this? No. Will there be some like fundamental thing that you can only do with 5G and couldn't do with 4G for a consumer? No, almost certainly not. Um, now that said, as we as the pipe gets bigger, stuff starts happening that you probably wouldn't have done on the old pipe. So very obviously, it would have been really tough to do Snapchat on 3G um, or even 4G. But when everybody has 50 and 100 megabits per second coming into their phone, I mean, never mind that actually most smartphone use actually happens at home on Wi-Fi. But you know, when you've got 50 or 100 or 200 megabits per second on your phone, then you can put your assumptions about what kind of applications you can build change. And so you get more heavy on video, you get more heavy, heavy on animation and audio and um, a bunch of stuff that you wouldn't have done, done previously. Um, but that's kind of the same as saying, what do I think about Doxis 3? Like the cable companies will deploy it. It will cost them a lot of money. Our internet will connection will get faster. What's the killer app for Doxis 3? Well, if you really had to answer, you would say Netflix. But I don't think anyone was kind of looking at that wouldn't really been a useful way of thinking about it. And so I think that's kind of the general answer for 5G. However, what is new in 5G that's kind of interesting, on, particularly on the enterprise side, is what's called networks, things like network slicing, um, which is you can segment specific pieces of capacity for particular services. So going back to our autonomous conversation, supposing you have a truck that's fully autonomous on the freeway but needs human operation as it goes through the suburbs to get to a warehouse. So maybe you have a, somebody sitting in the truck, sleeping or reading or something. Maybe you have remote operation. And maybe the cellular operator says, right, we will have guaranteed 50 megabit capacity at this connect at this latency from this point on the freeway two miles before the exit to the exit along the route to the warehouse and it doesn't matter how many people are using snapchat in the neighborhood your capacity is ring fenced and segmented and so this will always work um and you couldn't do that with 4g because um, ultimately you're always still sharing the capacity with snapchat or youtube or what or netflix or whatever anyone else is doing on the network um with 5g you can segment capacity so there's a bunch of interesting conversations around that around connecting devices so like the security cameras in Times Square are connected by 5G and they will the connection will hold up even on New Year's Eve because you segment the capacity. Yes. Pick an, pick an example. Um, so there's a bunch of those kind of interesting niche business applications. I mean, niche is billions of dollars in this context. But for a consumer or for like the broader economy, it's just more, it's just one louder. It's just more bandwidth. Um, just like new version of cable internet, new version of DSL. Um, it's just like 4G. It's just more bandwidth. Um, and so... To the, 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 there is an interesting China conversation here because when you talk to people at, at, at cellular operators, at mobile operators, um, they will tell you that the best kit, both on price but also on kind of efficiency and kind of engineering metrics, the best kit comes from Huawei, um, which is why they are uncomfortable with the, um, the US's national security conversation around do you buy Huawei equipment or not. The reason that we're having that conversation is it's not like, well, we can easily do without it. It's actually, it's the best stuff. So people really want to buy it. Right. There's a reason not to. Um, so that's kind of the 5G, com 5G conversation. Then there is AI. Um, I think just as a kind of an aside, there's a joke in, in research circles that AI is anything that isn't working yet. Right. Because as soon as it works, it's, people say, well, that's just a database. That's just computation. That's just statistics or something. And so I think it's extremely useful to kind of not talk about AI because that almost in, in kind of triggers about a bunch of hand-waving and people imagine like Skynet and HowLand House. Right. It's useful to talk about machine learning, which is you know, a specific technology that works in a particular way, does solve a particular class of problem, doesn't solve a bunch of other, a bunch of other problems. So machine learning 
um, I often compare to like relational databases. It's like a fundamental step change that enables a whole bunch of things like just-in-time supply chains. You couldn't have a just-in-time supply chain without relational databases. Um, but nobody looks at McDonald's and says they're, an, they're a relational database company. Nobody looks at Walmart and says that's a relational database company. And no one worries about whether China had more relational databases. I mean, at that time, it would have been Japan. No one was sitting and saying, oh, my God, Japan's got more, got a lead in SQL. Um, that was not kind of a meaningful way of thinking about it. And so that's kind of a general way of thinking about machine learning. This is an enabling technology that will be in everything. And there are some bits of it where cutting-edge work is done that will give advantages to certain companies. The interesting thing about machine learning, partly because it kind of grew, kind of grew out of an academic background, is that almost everything gets published and made open source immediately. So as soon as Google work out how to do something, they publish it. It's not sort of staying inside the company as proprietary information the way like making blue light LEDs or making lasers or making you know, better hard disks or memory chips was kind of secret and proprietary. Everything gets published, um, and which, of course, poses a bunch of interesting questions around things like export regulation. Like, are you going to tell people that they can't export a mathematical formula? Um, and so then there's the China conversation in here. On the one hand, again, I, I mentioned Japan before. In Japan, in the, Japan in the 80s had this whole strategy around producing next-generation supercomputers. Right. Um, and this turned out to be a complete dead end, first of all, because supercomputers were kind of a dead end in the context of the broader tech industry, but also because it turned out this wasn't, you know, it wasn't a thing, something that responded very well to industrial policy. Um, it was much more kind of a computing, which became a, a much more of a bottom-up thing, particularly around software. Um, there is clearly a Japanese, uh, sorry, a Chinese government push around machine learning. Um, there is a certain amount of debate, and there's unquestionably there's a huge amount of good, good work being done in China, which sort of reflects the fact that China now has a lot of good universities, which probably wasn't the case 20, 30 years ago. So there's a lot of good academics in all sorts of fields in China. One gathers this isn't my field, but this is what one reads. Um, there is a certain amount of debate as to how much of the machine learning work that's being done in China is actually cutting edge and driving stuff forward, and how much of it is like, Tencent has 15 different product teams, and each product team has got 35 machine learning engineers, and they're all basically building the same stuff over and over again for each other. Um, that's to say there is a certain amount of kind of pushback from some people in China along the lines of, like, don't count the patents, which is kind of like counting tractor production. You know, this is not necessarily a great way of, of indicating what's happening here. In fact, it is, hilariously, the Chinese government in the relevant ministry produces every six months, they produce a, um, a report on the state of the internet, like going back into the late 90s. And until very recently, every six months, they produced a table showing the total file size of all the pages on the internet in China in bytes. <laughs> so you have like this kind of 50, this 50 digit number in bytes. <laughs> this is the total file size of all of the JPEGs on all of the servers in China. This tractor production is rising, comrades. So, I like the, the idea of, of one AI. number that explains it all. I find that very attractive. Yeah, exactly. It's like you can measure it. Therefore, we've produced more web. There's more web this year. <laughs> um, so I'm sort of, I think there's something to that. I think it kind of takes, you know, sort of long answer to a long question. But I think the kind of the China, Japan, China, America question, again, this is kind of, it's not really a tech question so much as it's kind of a geopolitical question. And tech features in it just because like, 50 years ago, we'd have been talking about steel production, automobile production. 100 years ago, it would have been railway production. Now it's tech production, whatever that means. So, I mean, I think on a sort of a fight, you could kind of do like to do like the 500-year view and say, like, in as it might be 1700, um, the big powerful economies were the ones that had fertile land and lots of people and a peaceful, you know, more or less 
competent government, and that meant China and Mongol, Mughal Emperor were the biggest economies on earth. I mean, you've all kind of seen these charts of percentage of global GDP over time. Um, and then Western Europe invents this way that you can get a much bigger economy with the same number of people. And Western Europe and the USA do it, and most of the rest of the world kind of doesn't do it for a bunch of reasons. And in the last 20 years, China and or 30 years, or China and to some extent India, have started doing it too, which is some sort of free market economy, industrial economy. Um, and the result is that kind of we're reverting to the mean of like, if you've got a huge number of people and a stable government and more or less a rule of law and you just let people get on with it, then you get rich. And you could sort of see that, uh, that conversation going on. I, I kind of made a, a chart about this a while ago. You could sort of see this conversation in, if you like, there was a point in time when Britain made all the railway locomotives because Britain invented railway locomotives. And that didn't last, not because like Britain started making bad railways, but because like Germany and France made them too, and America made them too. And so Britain's share of locomotive production went down um, because other places had people as well and economies. And so the biggest industrial economy went from being Britain to being Germany to being the USA. It didn't then become China, even though China was bigger than the USA because China had a civil war and foreign invasion and communism and Mao and everything right. else. But now they don't. So, you know, as the transition went from Britain to Germany to America, it should deterministically go to China. I mean, this is not a tech conversation. This is like a kind of macro global policy question. But you know, all things being equal, that's sort of what ought to happen. And the thing is, we uh, very often the conversation around China sort of reminds me about the paranoia about Japan in the 1980s. Sure the difference does. is J Japan has half the population of America. Right. And so the conversation is basically, well, Japan is going to become middle class, middle class industrial free market economy so it will get much richer and that like all things being equal it should rise to about half the level of america for the sake of argument or you know, pick your variables but like it shouldn't end up being bigger than america because japan isn't bigger than america china is bigger than america so all things being equal you would sort of expect deterministically that that figure should go up now there's on all some sorts of reasons why that's problems with that narrative and reasons why it's more complicated and reasons why China might slow down and blah, 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 blah. But I think that's my would be my sort of super high level deterministic model for thinking about this stuff and particularly thinking about why this is different from the paranoia about Japan. Right. Uh, last question. We're almost out of time. Uh, I did want to ask you about uh, I don't think I've used the phrase uh, big tech. Uh, I'm going to use it now. Big tech. Uh, there's a lot of interest in Washington about regulating these companies, maybe breaking them up in some fashion. And I think one of the foundations that sort of intent is built on is the idea that the biggest, whether it's Google or, or Facebook, um, Amazon, that there's something different about technology, uh, something maybe it's maybe it's, you know, all, all the data that they have access to that makes it that these companies are unassailable. They are forever dominant companies and the sorts of churn we've seen in the past among supposedly forever dominant companies that's different, that's changed, and uh, no one can challenge these companies, therefore, you know, we have to regulate them or break them up. Uh, just, just sort of, again, maybe your high-level thoughts on that. So, there's three or four separate pieces to that. One of them is, are these companies invulnerable and can nothing change? And is this kind of, is there something different now to Microsoft or IBM or Standard Oil or something in the past? Right. Another is, um, your answer to that question can be either yes or no, but that doesn't mean that you don't regulate specific things today anyway. Mm -hmm. um, even, you know, 
you know, so, so the, the Keynes line in the long run, we're all dead. You know, even if you're absolutely convinced that in 20 years, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon will have disappeared off the face of the earth, that doesn't tell you whether or not you should regulate X or Y or Z today um, or not. You know, that's kind of it. That should actually be an independent conversation. And there's a kind of a subset of that, which is, well, what do you actually do? Do you quote unquote break them up? Um, and I think, and I can maybe kind of come back to that. I think that's kind of a, um, a, his, a I think that's an intellectually lazy um, sort of force of habit that break up is somehow the only kind of tool set that you have that comes to mind. And I think it, there's a bunch of reasons why it's not actually a very bad way of thinking about it. Presuming you think Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon are a huge problem and that something has to be done about them, it doesn't follow that break up is the thing that would actually have any effect or that would be a meaningful solution. So you can kind of pull those three questions apart. Like, are they invulnerable? What do you do? You have to do something, and what specifically would you do? Um, to the first point, in a funny way, this kind of reminds me of the thing we were talking about earlier around um, like job creation. Like, you know, if you were sitting in like 1980 and you could say, "Oh my God, these PCs are going to get rid of all of these print-setting jobs," say, you would not have been able to predict that there would be an explosion in the number of graphic designers. So, or you know, pick your pick your job creation. It's always easy to see the jobs that are going to go away. Mm -hmm. It's always very difficult to see the jobs that are going to get created, yeah. and the problem with this is, on the one hand, you can sit and say, well, there will be new jobs, but I can't tell you what they're going to be. Just have faith that there'll be new jobs. And that's kind of an irritating assumption. It's kind of an yes. unfalsifiable assertion. The problem is, the counter to that is, this process that has been going on for the last 250 years is just going to stop right now. And that's also a problematic assumption. Um, and I think it's probably easier to kind of take the empirical model that says they're always new jobs, but we can't predict what they are. Like you need a really good reason as to why that process is going to stop. You don't need a really good explanation as to what the new jobs are going to be. You need to, have, you need to prove why this is over. Yeah. And I think the same point again applies to tech companies that what's tended to happen over time is that, let's sort of unpick this a little bit more. Um, there's sort of two, there's a couple of phases of market creation. There's a phase of market creation where there's a bunch of people fighting it out and it might look like somebody has won, but then they fall behind and they get overtaken and then one company wins. And so this is like when people said that Yahoo would be eternal or people said that MySpace would be eternal. And this is like looking at Lotus and saying, well, Lotus will be eternal and actually Microsoft Office wins, Facebook wins, um, Google wins and so on. Um, and so that's kind of the, the, the combat phase. Then there's a phase when like, the market has been established and it's mature and you've got one or two winners and they're big and solid. Um, how do you overturn those guys? Because that's a very different conversation to Facebook overturning MySpace. That, that was when the market was immature. When the market's mature, it's a, it's a different conversation. And what's happened historically is that not that somebody overturned the winner, but that the whole market kind of became irrelevant or it ceased to be the focus of dominance within the broader tech industry. So... Um, IBM's mainframe business grew like five or 10 times in terms of installed computing base from 2000 to 2010. Like they sold way more mainframes. And this is like five or 10 years after everyone would have said mainframes are dead and mainframes are like a thing from the 60s that have disappeared. Mainframe business, right. is, still there. Mainframe business is still there. Um, the UK value added tax system runs on DEC, it runs on digital equipment computers. DEC like hasn't existed for 15 years. They're still running on those computers. <laughs> right. um, so like mainframes are still around. IBM continued for like 20 years to have a great business around mainframes. The same thing with PCs. Microsoft won PCs, then first the web, and then mobile, 
removed the whole basis of Microsoft's dominance of the computing industry. So the web means no one writes Windows applications anymore. And then smartphones, iOS, and Android means Windows PCs are no longer the center of the creation of, of, of computing either. Microsoft has still got a great business. You know, there's still one, one point one one and a quarter billion PCs out there. There's you know maybe a billion PCs out there running Office, and Microsoft is shifting to a services model and a subscription model. And you know, but Microsoft is a new IBM. I mean, not the new IBM now, and IBM is in trouble. But you know, Microsoft is um, a big tech company um, that has a big services business and makes lots of money. But no one's afraid of Microsoft anymore, just as nobody was afraid of IBM in the 2000s, even though they were still a big business. Um, and so what happens is, like, you build your castle, nobody gets in, but, like, the river changes course. Right. And your castle is now just kind of off in the middle of the plain somewhere, and, like, people can just see it, but no one really cares. And you can't, you know, you built your tax, you built your castle on the side of the Rhine, and you've been tapped, charging a toll on every boat that goes past for the last 500 years. And then the, the Rhine changes course, and your castle's still there, but you're not getting any tolls anymore. And that's what happened to IBM, it's what happened to Microsoft. Um, it seems inevitable in the same way that job creation and creation of new jobs is inevitable. It seems inevitable there will be some new fundamental trend like the web, like mobile, like social that comes along and makes like the fundamental levers, um, makes the moves the marketplace somewhere else, moves the questions to some other place. Um, and so I think that sort of thing. And how much of your time do you spend figuring out what's going to change the course of the river? Well, so quite a lot. I mean, this is the thing. There's a, there's a, there, there are periods in time when you're kind of you're in the vertical part of the S curve. Like five, six years ago, smartphone is the thing. Ten, twelve years ago, we were trying to work out what the thing is, and smartphone actually wasn't really on the list. No one was waiting for the iPhone before it appeared. Um, then you think, okay, this is the thing. It's exploding. And then there's a period when, like, well, that was the thing, and it's now it's really big. And today, like, somewhere between three and a half and four billion people have got a smartphone today. So, like, that's a thing. And now we think about, well, what's the next big thing and what would that mean? And it might come from some completely different place. So, you know, Microsoft was freaked out by open source and Linux, but Linux didn't affect the desktop. You know, there was a whole thing of Linux is going to take over Windows on the desktop. No, 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 no. It had zero impact on the desktop. Um, what changed was the web made that no one writes Windows applications anymore. Um, the same thing now, is it cloud? As we think about cloud and machine learning and cryptocurrency, it's just a different, the conversation just becomes completely different. And so we're not talking about the fundamental levers that that company had. Those levers are about something that, that ceases to be important. Do you, do you think there's a um, chance that the next big, big thing is something that you've never written a word about? Well, on what timeline? Like in, on a 10-year timeline of 100% certainty, it will be something <laughs> I haven't written anything about. Um, you know, nobody was really paying much attention to machine learning before about 2012. Right. You know, in 2012, if you're a computer science PhD and you said you wanted to work on neural networks, that was like a dumb idea from the 80s that had never worked. You're ruining your career. It's like working on VR. You know, this is another dumb idea from the 80s that had never worked that, that started working because of Moore's law, apart from anything else. Um, and so, you know, will there be a cryptocurrency again, you know, six, seven years ago, you know, invisible, more or less, except for a tiny number of people? Um, you know, I've not really thought about cryptocurrency at all before I joined A16Z. So, yes, there will always, you know, deter yes, of course, yes, it's a truism that will be new fundamental things. I mean, I think to kind of, kind of go back to kind of a super high level here, one of the ways that one hears sort of antitrust people talking about this stuff is drawing comparisons with railways and with um, Standard Oil. 
And I think there's kind of two problems with this, like a specific and a general problem with this. The specific problem is what Standard Oil did for the sake of argument was they own the refineries and the pipelines and the gas stations and rival gas stations can't get any gas and rival refineries can't get any get their product to market and rival pipelines can't uh, kind of can't get either. And so you're bundling and Google and Facebook and Amazon don't do that. They're actually much more better. They actually look much more like Walmart and Amazon, most obviously. How would you break up Walmart? Like, what would you do? Would you say, well, you can't break it up geographically. Well, that would just create local dominance. And you could say, well, we split the groceries from the clothes. And like, that doesn't make any kind of sense. So, like, there's a. I think you split Zap- of- apparently you split Zappos from Amazon and Waze from Google. Yeah, which are trivial. I mean, there's totally peripheral, unimportant businesses that have no effect at all on their market dominance. And this is kind of the problem that this is, is, is what I said in kind of my opening response to your question is you can presume, even if you presume, you can answer yes or no to is the dominance permanent. That doesn't change the question of should you regulate. But then when you say, well, should you regulate, what would, would, you, would we do? It doesn't follow that breakup is the only thing. And there's a bunch of reasons why breakup per se is actually a really bad way of thinking about what you do, to what, what would have any meaningful effect on these companies. So that was kind of put to the kind of standard oil point. Breaking up standard oil, there's like a coherent reason why that makes sense. It's much harder to apply that to argument to Walmart or to Amazon. Um, I think the other point here is that like, oil was a thing for 100 years. And railways were a thing for at least 50 years. Um, you know, cars come along and then aircraft, but, you know, the railways were a thing. And Microsoft basically achieved dominance in PCs by the early 2000s, by the early 1990s. I mean, Windows 95 kind of puts a seal on the victory. You could run it a little bit better, a little bit earlier. You could say they've won by the late 80s. Fine. Netscape was launched before launches just at the same point. So the new thing that makes their dominance irrelevant is already in the market by the time they've won. And so Microsoft's dominance of tech, the period in which everyone in tech is afraid of Microsoft, lasts maybe 10 years, not 50 years, not 100 years. And so that, the speed of the cycle here, and then you compare that with like how long it takes to get antitrust action through. I mean, you've seen this with sort of the EU attempts to intervene with um, Google. And, you know, the EU is fining Google for, for products that they launch, shut down, replace, shut down the replacement and launch again. And like nobody at Google who can remember that product. Um, and so that's, you know, that's obviously kind of an execution question, but I think there's a kind of a deeper point here, which is there's just this sort of presumption that, well, Google's won and that's it. Which is like, you know, um, this is a much, much, much faster moving industry than that. All right, my, this is my, my very last question and we've gone over, right? I, I, I wanted to try to uh, sneak it in here at the end. Do you think that innovation is being suppressed by these companies buying buying up smaller companies who are who, with new technologies who are their future competitors so these companies never get big and become their competitors um it's 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 a it's a it's a theory i hear a lot these days um do, do, is it, do you think there's anything to it or is it a case that that's actually good for for new companies because it provides an off-ramp for for the for these for their investors to get paid out any thoughts there before we go so i don't find this argument particularly convincing I mean, yes, big tech, you know, tech company exits are kind of part of the the engine of company creation. So you kind of need to have exits in the system. And that's how it works. And, you know, I don't think we see very many companies where you link, oh, no, that would have been that would have been a great idea. But Facebook squashed it. 
Um, it doesn't follow that, you know, you shouldn't take on Google at the core part of being Google because they have, you know, enormous scale and advantages and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I really don't see like a kind of a stifling effect on new company creation, quite the opposite. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the kind of the, the, the irony here is that the battle to produce cloud services in the form of AWS and Google Cloud and the race for them to create new machine learning capabilities and open source them means that there are vastly more companies being created and it's vastly cheaper to create a company. Um, I mean, you know, the, if we think about Instagram, Instagram had, what, seven people, eight people right. when Facebook bought it? Yeah. And they had 50 million, 60, 70 million users, something like that. So the cost of creating a company um, is vastly lower. And so the ability to innovate, the ability to create new businesses is vastly lower. And a lot of that is because of the kind of the platform capability that you get from the App Store, that you get from AWS, that you get from Google Cloud. Um the distribution and the payments and the open source software. There's a real kind of, I mean, there's a sort of a generalized point here that part of the reason tech activity has sort of accelerated was we're standing on the shoulders of giants. You don't have to build the primitives yourself. You don't have to create the building blocks yourself every time you build a company. Um, you can just kind of pick them up. And so I think there's a huge amount of company creation happening in large part, as I said, kind of ironically, because of the existence of these platforms, because they're platforms, you can build on them. My guest today has been Benedict Evans. Benedict, thanks a lot for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you.